0: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Legal Glass Ceilings. It gives me great pleasure to invite Joel Samakula to be our guest this afternoon. Joel is a young barrister. He's in his second year of practice. He's had an interesting and varied career to date. And he's somebody who has made it through into one of the top chambers in the UK from an entirely non-legal background. And he is, in a sense, somebody that this podcast is all about. Someone who started knowing nothing about the law and has got himself into a position where he's launched his career spectacularly well. And I'm sure Joel, there'll be an awful lot of people who want to know how you did it. Okay. Good afternoon and welcome to the podcast.
1: Good afternoon, uh, David, and yeah, thanks so much for having me on.
0: So let's start back at the beginning, Joel. Tell me about your background, your upbringing, your heritage
1: sure so uh, i'm the son of immigrants so first generation family I migrated from uganda i actually was born in kampala moved here at the age of one and like many east african migrants moved to the east end of london there's a vibrant ugandan community and that's that's where i grew up in and around stratford and forest gay and grew up here with my four sisters Spent a lot of my childhood in a two-bedroom council flat. That was definitely overcrowded. Something I've, uh, I've seen a bit more of as I've developed into my own property practice. And went to the traditional state schools all throughout. Mum worked for the NHS and my dad was a teacher. Uh, my parents separated when I was about 13. And, and from about that point, it was largely the five of us and our uh, mum. And, and that's kind of how it all began for me. Here. And
0: so you lived in a house... From, from the age of 13, with four sisters and your mum. Yeah. It must have been a pretty female-dominated
1: environment. It was. So um, it, it, there were a lot of women in, in, in my house. And I think when I was younger, actually, I became an army cadet. And I think some might say one of the reasons I became an army cadet was to kind of get out of this, this particular environment, just go out and do things with other... The other boys might like to do, for example. Uh, but I also, I'd say, I also went to an all-boys Catholic school, so that was a pretty male-dominated environment, but that was the nature of, of my home life, for sure.
0: So you are in a state school, and it's no secret to say you did reasonably well. Is that fair? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think um, well, things did go well at school. It, it, it's funny looking at my, my younger sister's 18 and she's just done very well in her own A-levels. And it does take me back to that time. I think I think I worked quite hard at school and, and achieved good results in both my GCSEs and my A-levels.
0: And while you were doing that and you were achieving and you were near at the top of the class, were people talking to you about a potential career or did you have to make it up for, or set your own standards for where you were going to go?
1: I have to say i went I went I went to quite a good state school in the East End so it was the majority of my peers were young black men and and that's important because actually nationally the what statistics were saying about uh, outcomes for young black men were were quite bleak you know if uh, if you're a young black man growing up in the inner city the expectation wasn't that you were going to end up with brilliant exam results but we happened to go to a school where the outcomes in particular for young black men were amazing and uh, you had staff who were committed uh, to ensuring that continued and, and really understood the environment in which a lot of their students grew up and, and, and where they came from and the extra challenges that they dealt with in, in really trying to make it in this world. And so I think for me, my school is called St. Bonds and I'm actually a governor at that school now. And I, I always say I felt very supported in school in terms of aiming high, being pushed to think bigger than our small East London bubble. I mean, so much so, you know, we had a couple of students a year who would get into Oxford uh, or Cambridge, which for us, our school was a really big deal. And and I think I saw that quite early on. And and I remember that being a particular aspiration of of, of mine as well. And, And people went to all kinds of universities, but that was a particular one. And so from the school perspective, I felt very supportive. And then also you've got my parents who come from very humble beginnings but always told us, you know, education was the key to getting to where it is that you need to be, and really pushed us and and, and celebrated our wins, particularly in the world of education. This is not what people
0: would think of as an inner city comprehensive. This is an inner city comprehensive with aspiration and drive for the cohort who can
1: succeed. No, indeed. It was... It was definitely a national story. And then the headmaster, when I started that school, ended up becoming quite high up in, in Ofsted, actually. So, and then is known as a national leader in education. So it, it was definitely a, an inner city comprehensive that did everything it could to change outcomes for this particular cohort of students. And I think continues to be committed to that.
0: So once you finish school, yeah,
1: which university did you aim for? So that's, a, that's an interesting one, because I, as I mentioned, I had this aspiration to get into Oxford and I applied but I applied uh, for that to study law law with German but also in year 12 I remember walking through the corridors and one of the English teachers at school who also used to coach me in debating asked me Joel have you ever thought about studying in the US and I'd um, never thought about that but he'd received some something in, um, in his uh, pigeonhole about opportunities for inner city students uh, to get full support with making applications to the states. We've never had a student from my school ever go to the US for university. But I was the kind of young person who would say, yes, why don't I give it a go? So I ended up on uh, the United States Achievers Programme with something called the Fulbright Commission. And that year, so we're talking about 2006, 2007, that year the focus is to try to encourage more students from non-traditional backgrounds to apply to top US universities. And it's interesting that happens in 2007 because you get the crash in 2008 and things like programs like this stop being a focus, right? Funding gets pulled for, for for these kind of things. But I happened to be one of the lucky ones just before the kind of world completely changed. And I get onto this program and I'm told about something called the Moorhead-Kane Scholarship at the University of North Carolina. I'd never really heard of UNC Chapel Hill or or this scholarship, but it seemed like an amazing opportunity for me. It was four years fully funded at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and not just studies funded, everything else it took to kind of make it as a student. Then every summer we had funding to go somewhere in the world to take part in an experience that would enhance our educational experience. So ultimately I applied for that program uh, and also applied to, to Oxford and a number of other universities here. And found myself lucky enough with, with offers from both of these things. And when I was that I ended up going to the States for my undergrad. And that all started off of a, this conversation in the corridor with Mr. Anthony. and That completely changed my life.
0: You then went to do, presumably, a broad-based arts degree at North Carolina. Because they don't study law as a first degree in the States, do they?
1: No, that's right. So I did what they call liberal arts. Which is completely opposite, I think, of the way we do university in the UK. The first about a year and a half did a range of things. I mean, I, I think I came in as wanting to specialize in history, then I tried, then it was going to be international relations, then it was political science. I was always quite a curious student. And as I do something else, I decided that was actually what I wanted to study. But ultimately, after about a year and a half of exploring, I settled on political science and economics. So I think the first part is much more broad based, and then you do eventually specialize. And ultimately left UNC with with a degree in, in political science and econ, and that
0: made you really, if not unique, certainly one of a very small number of inner city kids from London who had a North Carolina very prestigious North Carolina degree. So what happened next?
1: <laughs> yes, it's not it's not a common story, and I, I I still continue to always encourage students from inner city backgrounds to to think about going abroad if they can. I should say. One of the things that made that option a bit more attractive than perhaps being in the UK was that I don't come from a particularly wealthy family and it was going to be no student debt. I just realised at that point that if I could graduate with no student debt, that may really open up what it was that I could do after university. But ultimately, I mean, after after Chapel Hill, the banks and consulting firms came knocking. I had an economics degree and I'd done pretty well in, in at UNC and after a summer internship at Morgan Stanley in the healthcare group doing investment banking, I accepted the full-time offer and moved to New York to become an investment banker. If you'd asked me at 17 when I was debating what I was going to do for university, I never would have thought that at 22, I was going to start my working career on Wall Street. But that's, that's where we went after North Carolina. It's a long way from Stratford. Yeah, it is a long way from Stratford. You're
0: 22. You're at Morgan Stanley, a prestigious Wall Street firm. How long did you pursue Wall Street?
1: Ultimately, I ended up being at the bank for two years. I completed the analyst program. If you know anything about the way the world of finance, at least in America, works, it's very common for people to do two years of investment banking, then, normally, two years of private equity, and then a lot my peers would have ended up two years in an elite business school, so Harvard or Wharton, and that's a pretty standard route. But I think for me, after some time at the bank, I quickly, well, I realised that I still hadn't really lost the stream of wanting to become a barrister. And when I was looking at what my options were after finishing the analyst programme at the bank, there was still this itch that I really wanted to explore and, and give a go. And I, And I thought, if I didn't go for it at 24, then if I went deeper into the world of finance, I was never actually going go to give this a go. Ultimately, I left, the, I left Wall Street and left finance and came back to the UK to do a law degree, very similar to the one I turned down six years earlier.
0: So you went to an undergraduate law degree, not, not the conversion course.
1: That's right. I did what they call the Law with Senior Status degree. So that's a degree for people who already have done an undergraduate degree somewhere else. And you almost have to persuade these universities that you can do the full undergraduate degree, which normally takes three years, in two years. And so I came and did the interview and and got accepted onto that program. And uh, And
0: where was that?
1: That was at Oxford.
0: So you're back in the dreaming spires that um, (laughs) were you having
1: turned them down five years earlier? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I think my mum always likes to tell a story that when I told her I was turning down Oxford to go to UNC Chapel Hill, she thought I was completely mad. And for an African mother to tell, for her son to tell her that he's not going to Oxford, it's just completely unheard of. And I think mom says at 18, I said to her, don't worry, mum, I'll be back. And so six <laughs> years later, I, uh, yeah. Eventually uh, you were right. And I I come back and, and get to fulfill that particular dream of my mother's as well.
0: So you're back in Oxford. You're now a graduate. You've got two years experience in Wall Street. You know how to learn and you knuckle down to do the law.
1: And how did it feel? It was different. I think the having worked just so intensely on wall street i was very used to an intense period of working and, and there were some parts of the senior status that really were like that a bit in terms of just the volume of work a bit like being on wall street uh, but it was a different way of of um of thinking and, and and working and it kind of fulfilled this intellectual itch that i had that i, I hadn't felt i was getting as much in, in what i was doing before and I found it fascinating. I mean I've been fascinated with the law ever since I was a child. I used to love the bill as a as a kid, the TV show. I, my my family will tell you that if there is a a courtroom drama or any kind of, that's anywhere, any movie or anywhere in the world now with the world of Netflix, I would normally watch it. So there's always been this fascination and to, to come back to Oxford and get to study English law. I mean I, it really was one of my happy places and fulfilled this lifelong goal. Uh, and
0: is it the law that interests you, or the law as a tool to solve people's problems, or a law as a tool to do justice, or is it all of those things?
1: Well, I think it's two. I think it's 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 the law in terms of how society organizes itself, and I think the political scientist in me, that background, in terms of how we ultimately determine how we distribute power, how how we decide who wins if there's a the dispute between. Uh, two parties and, and how we decide what the law should be when the answer is not completely clear from cases that have already been decided that 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 kind of that intellectual point is something I really enjoy I and mean, then there's definitely another aspect of using the law um, to do justice and, and, and have some kind of positive impact on the world I think those values were instilled in me from my time at St Bonds which was my school and then also taking on this scholarship in the U.S. and 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 I think that's always been important to me in terms of what it is I choose to do with my career. Uh, and the law just gave me some of the material and some of the tools through which I could do that on behalf of clients and hopefully play some role in making the world a little bit of a better place.
0: But sometimes, Joel, when we operate as lawyers, because we don't choose our clients, the best lawyers gravitate to the people with the most money to preserve the status quo in terms of power and how do you
1: feel about that? I, I, I think that's a continued personal debate most of us have as, as well, particularly as barristers. I think the, the difficulty here is quite right we don't we don't choose our clients and I think if you I know there are different schools of thoughts on this but if you really ultimately think you're not there are people who you will not be able to act for or If there's some kind of goal that that you get presented with that you just cannot act because of your own moral convictions. And I think this this job can be a particularly difficult one because as barristers, you do the case for the client who comes to you first. Uh, But I think ultimately there are ways to use your skills as a lawyer to do good. And, And we get those opportunities either through, for example, doing pro bono work or you get cases that come to you the right way sometimes you, you get those cases that really give you a chance to, to, to help someone or to try to push the law in a direction you think may do a large amount of good but I think you can't get away from the fact that as a lawyer sometimes especially in the areas in which I practice you're well aware that the reason this person has you as their lawyers because they have the money and the person on the other side or someone else perhaps isn't represented or, or is not able to get the same assistance because they don't have the money and that's a difficulty within our system and it's obviously made worse by limits on access to things like civil legal aid or other routes to funding that allow people to really use the law to protect themselves. And, and, and one hopes that will at some point change for the better, but it's a, I think it's something that we all have to grapple with.
0: Yeah. I've taken you slightly out of sequence, but there came a point when you thought, cause you said you, you'd studied law to become a barrister. And then you had the mountain to climb Of getting pupillage. Now, people listening to this will think that is as difficult as climbing the Eiger sometimes. (laughs) Um, Talk us through how it felt to go through the pupillage application process, albeit, of course, you were coming with a pretty impressive CV, which set you apart from a large number of people who'd just been through school and then got three years university law degree.
1: Yeah, I think anyone who's come across my story is well aware that I found it quite challenging to get pupillage. It, it took me three years. So I got pupillage on my third goal, rejected. What, there was probably over 30, 35 times in that period, either at the first round, second round or really at the reserve stage. I ended up being a reserve seven times. And what, what I mean by that is making it to the very final stages, but but not quite getting the offer. I'm still yet to meet someone who's been a reserve as many times as me. With <laughs> uh, the worst luck one can, some of the worst luck one can get. This is like this is like always
0: being the best man and never the bridegroom, isn't it? It's exactly.
1: Like, I always use I use the phrase "always the bridesmaid," but I don't know if that's not the right term for myself. But it's, <laughs> it's it took a lot. It, it felt like it took a while for me to become the bride or the bridegroom. But but it was it was difficult, and I think those listening, I, I don't want that. To be a reason to put people off because yeah I think I had a background which in many ways will make it seem like it should be I should have some success with getting people. but when you go through this process ultimately you realize there's a lot of people coming to the bar with very impressive backgrounds there's not a centralized recruitment process each, each chambers is selecting one two or three people and dealing with I think at the, at, the, at the top chambers you know 150 something like that applications from each one of those spots I think my own story is testament to the idea that if, if, if you have the drive for this and also you've had some success along the way, so whether that's doing particularly well at university, applying for scholarships and, and, and getting those secured experience that may be relevant to the type of pupillage you're trying to get, if you've got that, and then you've just got the grit and the determination to get up and go again when it doesn't quite work out. I think ultimately the bar for the most part, does end up picking out those people who will thrive in this career. But I'd be lying if I didn't say, particularly after that second year, it wasn't really hard to get up and go again, especially after getting so close. Because you put so much of yourself into this, into trying to become a pupil. I think sometimes we have to learn to separate a lack of pupilage success from our inherent value you know it doesn't mean not make getting people It does not mean you're a terrible lawyer it doesn't mean you won't ever make it in this career and and i think sometimes you've got to be able to separate that but ultimately i think you've got to keep going for as long as you can and you've also got to be strategic you've got to think about the types of places you're applying to you've got to think about the profiles of the pupils who have come before you and you've got to think about what that what the market is particularly looking for at the time in which you're applying and then you've got to get, seek outside help. So I don't think I could have done this without some of my mentors and some of my peers and some of my university professors and actually some of my old bosses who gave me the confidence to keep going, provided me with some fantastic recommendations and looked over many an application or helped me think through a strategy for trying to finally that coveted pupillage.
0: I mean, it seems to me that pulling things out of what you're saying, the first thing to say is that you've got to pitch your pupillage application to somewhere that you think is looking for someone of your experience, your qualifications, your standard. There's no point in going too high. Don't pitch it too low. So that's quite, that's quite difficult. Secondly, keep going. The fact you don't get in the first year, the fact you get in the second year doesn't mean you're not going to get in because you're in a really top chambers. And the third thing that comes out is, is use other people who can help you on this process. People you've worked with, barristers, you know, your university, teachers, all of whom may help you make
1: a better application. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I just give the example, for example, when I applied for a grazing scholarship, And funding from Grey's Inn has been completely key to my ability to keep going on this journey of becoming a barrister. So I I always encourage all students and all aspiring barristers to really go apply for and secure the funding that's out there. When I applied for uh, the GDR scholarship, after that interview, I got an email from Grey's Inn with one of the silks who was on my panel, who offered to look over my pupillage application to help me in the next stage of my applications. Now, this was a, a silk top commercial chambers, and my response to his email and, and, and accepting the offer of help led to a, probably what's now a, a seven-year mentoring relationship in which he provided an unbelievable amount of, a, of assistance in helping me get to pupillage, and very much now in my early years of practice. To me, that, without that relationship, I'm not sure that I would have necessarily got to where it was that I, I wanted to go. And I think all of us have to look out for those opportunities. And look out for those people. And then once these things do come into your life, grab them with both hands and do the best you can with them.
0: Finally, having run the pre marathon, you got your pupilage at Landmark Chambers. And then you had what always seems to me to be the terrifying prospect of being a pupil for a year. Who can you do well enough to be, to be taken on? This must be recent and challenging. Tell people what it was like to be in chambers that you desperately wanted to join, but like forever on trial? Yeah.
1: If we start at the beginning there, I should say, I remember when I got that phone call from Landmark telling me that I'd been given an offer of pupillage. I think I had dropped to the ground or something. I was, I was working at the Court of Appeal at the time and I just couldn't believe this was potentially over. Well, this part of it was potentially over. That feeling makes all that time dealing with those rejections just really worth it in terms of your ability to keep going. So, I really hope everybody gets to have that feeling at some point. But once I come on as a pupil, yeah, there's a whole different challenge. At this point now, you're trying to get a job, different to any any job any other role I've ever had, because it's this nine month interview, and it's a marathon. You're working on things that you've never worked on before. Even if you have some legal experience, you're actually now learning the job of being a barrister is different than what it is you might have seen necessarily in the BPTC or other legal roles you've had. And it does feel like you're constantly being examined and constantly being watched and you're not quite part or you're not quite yet in the club. I think for me, in terms of what that experience was like, I was lucky. I was, I was in the chambers where I, was, I felt very supported as a people. They were very transparent in terms of where I stood and I, re- I, was, I was enjoying the work that I was doing. I have to say you know eight months in i was pretty exhausted (laughs) and uh, you know it's quite ready for for that decision to come one way or or another but overall a positive pupil experience i think as far as they go and the relief at the end of of that experience of being told that i've been taken on and i was finally in with something else although then starts the new challenge of trying to build a practice and actually Be a barrister, so it's uh, every stage of this. There's there's some new experience or hurdle that you've got to
0: overcome. So you've got champagne moments followed by the dawning realization. You've got another set of challenges in front of you.
1: Yeah, no, I always joke that I was um I think probably one of the first, probably the first people at landmark chambers to receive his offer of tenancy while wearing half a suit. So because I was a COVID pupil. So everything at that point was happening online. I got, I got my <laughs> penalty decision over Zoom. And so that was a, a funny experience, but, but we, we got it. And, and now the, the next thing is, well, how, how do you make a success of this dream or this thing you've been working for for so long? And it's a bit like uh, people are just tough, but all of a sudden the training wheels are off and people's expectations of you from day one are unlike any job I've ever had in terms of the level of expectations and stress that can sometimes come with that. And
0: Joel, looking back to the point when you started actually being a barrister, with briefs coming in with your name on it, yeah. What was the best piece of advice you were ever given?
1: I think it's the best piece of career advice I've ever been given. Was that at the early stage of your career, focus on learning and being around great peers and great bosses. Someone said, you there's plenty of time to make money. And I think that's always been a big driver for me early on in my career in terms of really focusing on opportunities and individuals who are going to make me uh, better at my craft. And that's really ultimately the focus. That's, I, I very much still feel that that's where I am at the bar. That's, that's what I want to be doing.
0: And you've been led by a number of silks, including me, yes, um, uh, in the last two years what have you learned from sitting behind some of the not me
1: but the masters of <laughs> <at> the craft <laughs> i'm not sure that initial stress that i was describing of uh, of client expectations and, and and the huge level of responsibility that comes with this job i'm not sure that necessarily goes away as you move further on with, through your career i think those who have been doing this for a longer than me still face that but uh, but i think have learned some key methods of, of, of handling that and so whether that's the way they appropriately manage client expectations whether that's the way they have foresight as to what it is a client really needs versus what they say they they may need and then also just the way they prepare and the tools they use to get themselves ready to shine and hopefully win uh, when they're actually in the courtroom so i mean that's that's a, a big piece for me And then the second thing I think I'd say that's been the biggest tool I think I've taken away from the various silks that I've worked with is, in many ways, this is a collaborative career. So the beauty of the Chambers, the beauty of the Chambers model is that often you do get the opportunity to bounce ideas and thoughts and intellectual challenges off of your peers and colleagues. And you should take those because it's those, those conversations, those insights that you gain from others, within our profession and and often at your level or or above your level, sometimes I guess even below, really push you to do even an even better job for your clients. And it's one of the major benefits of having the type of model that we have. I think say for that, particularly without that last part, that's how you avoid this career becoming a particularly lonely one. We don't think sometimes it can, but I think seeking those out can help you really avoid that. I I mean, I always find
0: it far easier to advise colleagues on their problems than the ones that I'm dealing with because there's a certain objectivity when someone puts their head around the door and says have you got five minutes what's the answer to this and quite often the, the answer becomes very clear almost becomes clear
1: when the person explains the problem before <laughs> you even say anything well, well I think just going off of that I mean David yours is an example of a door that's uh, that's uh, always open we happen to share the same floor but uh, but I think going off of that what's clear is that process that you go through yourself, for example, of framing your client's problem in your own head and getting ready to explain it to say a silken chamber chambers or someone else can often be one of the most helpful parts of your own preparation and can, I think, open up a level of understanding sometimes that you may not have just before you do that. And then you go out and, and get that assistance. And, and I've always thought that's one of the magical parts of being in the in chambers like ours. And Joel, how do
0: you balance your work life in your non-working life. Do you think it's really important for young professionals to keep a series of interests and focuses other than purely their professional career?
1: Absolutely, I think that's really important. Before starting as a pupil, I used to do a lot of comedy. So that was something I started at university. And I've been, I say, working or hobbying, I think, as 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 a comedian for about seven years now. And I thought when I started pupilage, I was going to have to give that up. After all the horror stories I'd heard about pupilage, I thought you just cannot have a life outside of that. I'm very happy to say that I never had to give up my comedy while I was a pupil at landmark, and I definitely haven't given it up as a junior tenant. I think having something outside of your job, your career, your vocation, is just re- a really important way to maintain some kind of balance and perspective. Thank you keeps you open to meeting people that don't just do what you do which is really key i think it allows you to develop skills that are outside of of, of the main thing that you do every day and hopefully it's fun and that's what you want so i always advise people keep doing whether that's sports some kind of volunteering some kind of creative pursuit i think keeping these things does actually in the end also make you a better barrister joel barrister and stand-up comedian. What's the
0: <laughs> piece of advice you would give to somebody who's listening to this and thinking, you are where I want to be. You're doing what I want to do. What do I focus on?
1: How do I get there? I know you want one piece of advice, but I want, I want to start with a, a kind of pre-warning and then I'll, and then I'll give the main piece of advice.
0: Yeah. Want, In your want, own
1: words. The bar is a challenging profession to get into, and I know this puts many students off. Um, especially when you look at the security being offered by some of the top commercial firms, even banks or, or consulting firms, who are rightly also looking to recruit uh, the top talent in the film, which is probably you if you're, if you're listening to this. However, I have to say, if this works out, it really is the most interesting job I've ever had. And I do hope more students, particularly those from non-traditional backgrounds, are inspired to join me. In terms of the one piece of advice, I'd say take advantage of the relationships that you have around you. I mentioned a few of them. Really lean on those relationships because a lot of the time these people have insights and experience that can save you a lot of time and also pick you up when things get inevitably quite difficult as you embark on this journey. Everyone who has had success getting to the bar can name a number of meaningful relationships without which they may have struggled.
0: So joining
1: in. Exploit
0: the opportunities, learn about the profession, try and meet the professionals. And actually, many of them will be far more open to helping than you might think from the
1: outside. That's it. I mean, I always say look, if you don't ask, you don't get. And in this day and age of things like LinkedIn, Twitter, where you have such easy access to professionals who are doing what it is that you want to do. I think you're crazy to not take advantage of that. I mean, my own story, which I've I've told on Twitter, was when I had the opportunity uh, when I was 17 to meet uh, then Prime Minister Tony Blair. There was a photo opportunity at, at the end of this meeting that I had with him and some other young people. And I was happy to be stood next to the Prime Minister at the time and I asked him about his wife, uh, who I understand has also been on this podcast, uh, Sheree Blair or Sheree Booth. and I asked if he would get me some work experience with Cherie Booth. And that's the kind of thing 17-year-old me would have done. Well, so
0: actually, you're saying to the Prime Minister, you're not the most important person. Actually, it's your wife I really wanted to. <laughs> so,
1: I said, so think- look, she's a very successful barrister, and I, I want to be a barrister, and is you know, there's something you can arrange. And his age took my details. I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. About two weeks later, I'm I'm in my sixth form common room, and I get a phone call on my mobile and says, Hi, Joel, this is Cherie Booth. I tell her about my aspirations, tell her about what it is that I want to do. And we talk about this potential work experience. But for me, that story and the fact that phone call came through, I couldn't believe that I was getting that phone call from a QC, knowing having no no barristers and, and really just having, having given, this, given this a go. But it was the kind of thing that I say to young people, if, if people are doing what it is that you want to do, reach out to them, use the tools at your disposal, and you never know quite where it will get you. Yeah, you got to kiss a lot of frogs. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly. I think for me, that story really highlights what I call the generosity of the bar at all levels. People really are willing to help others get to where they got to, particularly those that have faced particular challenges along the way. All you have to do is ask. It's very rare that people say no is what I've found.
0: It Entirely replicates my own experience. Joel, thank you very much. My pleasure. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Your progress from Kampala to Stratford to North Carolina to the stage for Stand Up Comedian, an occasional barrister. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm sure that many people will find an awful lot of interest in what you have to say. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.